Hello, and welcome to another episode of At Any Rate. I'm your host, Natasha Kanova, Head of Commodities Research at JP Morgan. And today we want to talk about commitments from European countries to diversify away from the Russian energy and also cover the latest round of SPR releases. Uh, I'm joined today by Shika Chaturvedi, Head of Global uh, JP Morgan Global Gas Research, and Ted Hall, who uh, covers oil uh, with me on the team. Welcome. Uh, so let's start first with uh, with the commitments so far we are seeing from uh, different countries to to move away from from the Russian energy. So it's the largest recipient of Russian oil, which is about sixty percent, and pipeline gas, which is about almost ninety five percent of uh, exports. Our belief has always been that without Europe joining the U.S. and cutting back on its nearly four million barrels per day of Russian oil and Russian oil and about one hundred fifty. BCM of pipeline gas imported during 2021, the Russian supply risk that uh, shut oil prices towards $130 per barrel and the gas towards 300 euros per megawatt hour will not be sustained. Uh, while clearly the European region will strive over time to limit the energy imports from Russia, you know, clearly what we're seeing at the moment is that replacing 40% of European gas and uh, almost 25% of oil demand met by Russian supply will be fraught with challenges, both political and practical. Um, but uh, entering the second months into the Russian invasion, uh, the political pressure to reduce imports from Russia is, is rising. So we had already a couple of rounds of announcements on Russian oil and gas uh, bans, but on Tuesday, the EU moved with mandatory phase out of coal imports from Russia. So what is important to differentiate is that uh, a full ban on anything requires a backing of all 27 member states. But however, it's very important to understand that each country can make its own individual decisions uh, to move or not move away from Russian energy sources without a full embargo on uh, from, from the EU as such. So Shika, let's start with uh, let's start with coal first, just because that was the, the most recent announcement. And today, Japan announced also a ban on Russian coal imports, joining EU and the G7 allies uh, to target Russian energy sector for the first time, yes, following the invasion, uh, Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Um, the numbers now are becoming big, yes, because Japan is the third largest importer of Russian coal after China and the India EU accounts for almost one quarter of total Russian exports. In your opinion, when you look at the numbers, uh, what are the implications uh, in general for the energy markets? Yeah, thanks, Natasha. It certainly is a new twist um, on everything that's going on, this this sort of EU ban, uh, potential ban on coal. And as you mentioned, um, it's not a full out outright ban at this point in time, but um, there are a significant number of countries in, in the European Union that are already on board um, in, in sort of getting off of Russian coal by the end of this year. Uh, generally speaking, just starting from Russia's point of view, um, it is significant that it's, you know, third and you know, fourth largest importers of Russian coal have started to deny taking in the Russian coal at this point in time. But I would say that there are probably other outlets for Russia's coal in, in the seaborne markets uh, and, and in China and India in particular. Um, so I'm not too concerned about it from the Russian standpoint. But what I do think is from a, uh, the European standpoint, there are probably larger implications um, in the shorter term uh, perspective for the European energy markets. And that's because I 
think really coal's become, even though Europe has spent the past decade reducing its reliance on coal, coal has become such a major aspect of the power stack at this point in time. Um, particularly last year and this year, given how high uh, gas prices are. So in Northwest Europe alone, they rely on maybe, maybe something like 25 to 35 uh, million cubic meters a day of gas to coal switching, right, to alleviate the gas mm-hmm. demand that's out there at this point in time. And when you are reducing your supply of coal into the country, which, you know, at this point in time, Russia accounts for about 46 percent of total imports that move into uh, Europe for coal. Um, And so I I think that that would be a significant situation where Europe has to go find that coal somewhere else. And it feels like it would be from the Australian markets, from uh, South African markets, even from the U.S. spot markets, to mm-hmm. try to source that coal in order to maintain um, the lower demand aspect that's in the natural gas space, because clearly natural gas is still um, is still kind of teetering at the knife's edge at this point in time. It's balance. Um, it's one supply disruption away from being in a precarious situation. So what this suggests to me is that it obviously will be quite costly for the European side. Um, it will raise the price of coal as they source from other alternative supply sources. Um, and ultimately what I think it does from a, a gas to coal switching perspective is it raises the floor from uh, the gas to coal switching price, which was sitting at around 65 euros per megawatt hour, but now is expected to be even higher um, as we start to limit its supply sources that it can actually Mm -hmm. choose from. Um, So I I think it's relevant in that case because it basically creates a floor for energy prices now that is even higher than we've had before. Right, no, you're absolutely correct. And um... I was looking yesterday about Russian volumes, whether they would be able to find outlet outside of uh, outside of Russia. And it seems that there is two completely different opinions. One is um, no, because the rail capacity is pretty much west to east is very constrained. Uh, and because of that, uh, pretty much those Russian volumes will be stranded. And the other opinion was the exact opposite of it. That was coal trading at about $300 at the moment. Uh, all of them are making so much money that they will find a way to to be able to uh, to ship those volumes to to the willing buyers in, in Asia. So Shikil with gas. So moving, you know, from coal to gas to the next uh, source of energy. Um, so we have commitments from nine European countries, which account for about twenty percent uh, of Russian imports, uh, to move to completely as yes, fully phase out gas imports. Um, so you described the implication on gas. Uh, I'm sorry, on coal for gas. So now we're adding gas to the same equation. So what, A, could you please talk about the timelines and B, about uh, balance and price implications? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, as you pointed out, there's nine countries right now that have kind of agreed to between now through the end of 2024 uh, to kind of get off of Russian uh, natural gas, pipeline gas at this point in time, as well as LNG. Um, I think last year, uh, Eurostat reported something like in total, including Turkey, all of Europe took in about around 186 BCM of gas from Russia. Um, of which now 
um, there's about 101 BCM of those nine countries. It's about 101 BCM of commitments to reduce by the end of 2024. Um, I think that what we need to really watch for are two major countries, Germany and Italy. Italy has made a pretty bold move to try to reduce close to 16 BCM of uh, Russian energy dependence or natural gas dependence by spring this year. And they do have other outlets to look at from Azerbaijan and Algeria from a pipeline perspective, as well as through mm -hmm. the LNG markets. The second country is Germany. And um, Germany obviously takes in quite a bit of uh, natural gas right now from Russia. And if, if they're able to manage and how they're able to manage to reduce their dependence on Russian gas will really set the tone for whether or not we're really going to see this movement away from Russian gas as quickly as we're expecting it to. Right now, their words we will we'll kind of see the physical action as we, we get through it. So we should definitely watch that going forward. Um, and I think that uh, from a pricing perspective, it's going to require uh, we've said this time and time again, it will require Europe to penetrate the LNG spot market even further. It will cause increased competition in the global LNG markets, and particularly in the next two years, it just suggests that you're probably going to stay in a higher price range for longer. And I think that higher price range suggests that you need to be priced to be competitive against oil. And, right. and that really would start to force the countries in Asia, for example, to keep utilizing oil at this point, point in time over natural gas so that Europe can kind of soak up some of that spot LNG, uh, those spot LNG cargos that they need. So, you know, I'm still looking at that 85 euro per megawatt hour to mm -hmm. about 120 euro per megawatt hour. And I know that's a wide range, but <laughs> yes. that's kind of the, the gas to oil switching range, you know, from um, the resid fuel all the way to the low sulfur fuel oil um, price levels. But, you know, sticking within that price range is going to be very important for Europe, I think, over the next two years in order to manage to do this. Yes. Um, yes, talking about uh, tight ranges, yes, very similar in, in oil. Yes, the range we're looking at, the prices is from 100 to $185, yes, depending what the, what the European, <laughs> European Union decides to do, yes. Um, so what is interesting in oil is, and you pointed this in, in gas, is that there is a broad recognition, yes, that the ability to switch away from Russian supply and pursue alternatives is, is greater for oil than for gas, yes. And the main reason for that is, you know, how this oil is being shipped because two-thirds of Russian oil exports into Europe are through seaborne routes, yes. And because of that, that provides a greater logistical flexibility versus the pipeline gas, yes, which pretty much you don't have any flexibility around that one. So on top of that, we have strategic, uh, ample strategic reserve storage. So Ted will cover that a little bit later and as well as greater availability of oil from other producers. So because of that, uh, we see significantly more commitments uh, from countries, uh, including US and UK, but also European unions, uh, European Union countries. And when we sum everything together, we're coming up with the commitments to replace uh, 2.1 million barrels per day of Russian volumes. So when we did the same exercise, what you did, Shika, in gas, we're estimating that very similar count, nine European nations have ex expressed support for a full diversification away from the Russian oil. So that's about 2 million barrels per day of 50% of the total imports, yes, versus 20% you mentioned in gas. What is interesting is four have rejected the idea, accounting for another about 0.8 million barrels per day, 21% 
of imports. Uh, what I was personally very, very surprised, the Netherlands, uh, the amount of uh, general oil and gas that the country consumes due to its uh, ample, very vast petrochemical sector is, is that's you know the number that really surprised me. So that's one of the countries, uh, the, you know, together with Greece, Hungary, and also Bulgaria that rejected uh, the, the idea of the ban. And after that, uh, we have a significant amount of countries that are neutral, but they says that they will be leaning towards where the majority is and the majority is right now to, to fully ban Russian oils. So very similar, like in gas, you know, that's what we look at in terms of the in terms of the numbers. Um, but overall, if we assume that all European countries will uh, will decide to ban to ban Russian um, Russian imports, then it, 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 what is important is the timeline as well. Yes, that if we say that it's an immediate uh, ban on Russian oil imports, then we can see the price going as high as hundred eighty five dollars per barrel by by December. If we assume uh, that only those nine countries that said yes, we are banning and we are banning in 2022, with you know some of that uh, leading through 2023, that's you know when we're coming up with average price forecast of about 114 dollars per barrel for the second quarter and 100 dollars for the second half of the year. But clearly, this is something that is very important. So we keep updating our numbers every single week and uh, publishing them so that you, everybody can see the count. Um, so um, what is interesting is that the, the next set of news, important news this week, was uh, the announcement on Wednesday of uh, the next round of uh, IASPR releases. Uh, so, so far uh, this year, we had two IA releases. The first one was announced on March 1st. The second one was announced on April 6th. And then we had the announcement coming from the U.S. on April 1st, when the U.S. said that uh, it will be releasing 60 million barrels uh, of its uh, strategic reserves. So all those three combined, you know, the two IA releases plus the U.S. release on April 1st, uh, we're estimating that almost 240 million barrels of oil will be released into the market this year. The timeline we're looking at, it's about six months. So, Ted, uh, moving to you, um, A, the, the, this is clearly a very large number. Um, so what, what exactly, if we, you know, how would do we translate this 240 million barrels of announcement into actually million barrels per day monthly impact on our balances? Thanks, Natasha. Well, there's a lot of confusion about these numbers. And in everyone's defense, the, the IA hasn't been particularly clear about that communication. So... It's actually 270 million barrels this year. So there've been a series of announcements. So the first announcement, like you said, early March, the initial reaction to Russian supply risk. So the IEA together, together announced about 63 million barrels of releases. Half of that's the US, half of it's the rest of the IEA allies. And then last week, the US came out with its announcement that was 180 million barrels. Now this is where the confusion starts because the US, as included the initial announcement, the initial 30 million barrels as part of that 180. So then the IEA this week announced 120 million barrels, half of which is the US. So that 60 million barrels, it wasn't clear initially whether that was including the initial 30 from the rest of the IEA or whether it was on top of that. And so in, in a plain read, I'm going to quote directly from the press release from the IEA. They said the two IEA collective actions this year of 
62.7 million barrels and 120 million barrels. So it's clear to us that that actual number is 182.7 million barrels. So that brings the total. Uh, so half of that's the U.S. again. So the total of the the U.S., the 180 they've announced, and the 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 half of the of this extra number, the 180 from the IEA, that that comes to 270 million barrels this year. So we expect that uh, release to average about 1.3 million barrels a day over the next six months and peaking at 1.4 million barrels a day this summer, the Northern Hemisphere summer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ted, th- th- thank you for clearing those numbers. Yes, so if you include the November, yes, announcement from the US and allies, the number is larger. But the big argument we're hearing from the clients is that uh, USSPR can't release faster than the sustained, uh, you know, the number mentioned is about 500 KBD because it will disrupt the commercial flows. Um, so your your opinion on that, A, you, you know, do you agree with that? B, are there any technical issues that uh, SPR cannot release more than, you know, more than what, you know, the stated number is out there and, you know, what what, what, do, what do you believe? I mean, we think the 500,000 barrels a day number is far too conservative. Um, I think a lot of that comes, now on, on the technical capacity side, that's, we think the SPR can deliver at, at minimum, the million barrels a day they promise. Uh, capacity of the SPR release on the Gulf Coast is 4.2 million barrels a day. You may not, we may not think they could reach that nameplate. If they wanted to reach 4.2, that would be very difficult. But we think 1 million barrels a day is well within their reach. The question is, and I think it's a fair question, is commercially, you know, is the DOE going to be able to price these barrels in so they could disrupt commercial flows? So if, if the DOE just takes what it thinks are very, very competitive and favorable offers, then sure, they're going to have trouble delivering barrels and they may not be able to reach their goals. But we think it's reasonable to expect that the, that the you know, from the Biden administration, the DOE is under instructions to meet that goal if they can, the million barrels a day goal. So we, we do think they fall a little short of that because they, they're not going to be able to take every offer. If, if, if a buyer comes in and offers $30, $30 a barrel under market, the DOE is not going to take that. But we do think they'll be more aggressive than they have in the past. And by that logic, we think they can reach to about 900,000 barrels a day on average. Ted, thank you so much. So thank you to Shika and Ted for joining me today. Thank you all to listening to the Commodities Edition at JP Morgan's At Any Rate podcast. We look forward to continue the conversation next week. Thank you. This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to JP Morgan Research Reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022, JP Morgan Chase & Company, All Rights Reserved. This episode was recorded on April 8, 2022.